Well, good morning, church. Such a privilege to be here with you, to be able to open God's Word and be able to study it together. So I thank God for this opportunity. And while I miss my Cedar Lake, Cedar Lake peeps, I'm glad to be here with you. So I wanted to remind us of a couple weeks ago when you um, were watching the news, like me, and seeing all, everything come in about the shooting that happened in Las Vegas. And while we were watching that unfold or reading about it or watch, you know, looking at tweets and all that stuff, it was very disheartening. It was very sad. A lot, you know, it's one of those things where you say, why would somebody do such a thing? And as Christians, we're reminded that we are depraved individuals and we're capable of evil. But during the, the news broadcast, one thing that seems peculiar to me is every time they, they seem to mention that, uh, you know, no one from the band had been shot or no one, you know, from the crew had been hurt by the shooting. And I, it brought me back to Paris and, and the shooting that happened there with that concert and the Eagles of Death Metal and that whole thing. And I, all, I remember every time I'd turn on the TV or I would uh, read online, it would be like, but no one from the band had been shot. And I was thinking, why do we do that? What, why do the news agencies do that? Well, they, they do that because they know that we're asking that question. We care. And it's because we as people tend to ascribe more value or importance to famous people, to stars. And every life that was there is just as valuable, right? Made in the image of God, no matter what their background, everyone is important. And yet we as humans tend to put more stock in those that are, as are famous. I believe this is because of human nature. See, as humans, we are wired for worship. We are created with a propensity for worship. In fact, we're always worshiping. Somebody has described it as a tractor beam. You know, it's always on. It's just where are we directing the worship. And if we're not worshiping the one true God, the creator God, then we're going to worship something or someone else. That is our tendency. And so we as human beings have a propensity to worship people. And John Calvin, he said this famous uh, quote, our hearts are a perpetual idol factory. Maybe you've heard that before. And he was speaking about unbelievers when he wrote that. We as Christians, we as believers, we have a new nature. So you could say we have a new foreman at the idol factory. And yet to be theologically accurate, our hearts are new. We've been made new and we don't, our hearts aren't even an idol factory. We have the capacity to glorify God with our life. But if you're like me, you know, you fall back into that job pretty easily, don't you? of making idols, and, and, and raising up things that steal glory from God. So functionally, Calvin's quote still applies to us believers today. And let's talk a little bit about our culture. Our culture does not seem to help this worship malady, does it? I mean, from a very early age, we long for importance. We long for recognition. We desire to be somebody, and the mantra that we hear is, you know, reach for the stars or be whatever you want to be. And I get it. I'm a parent. You know, no one wants their kids to be losers. We all desire great things for our kids. But if we're not careful as parents, we can feed that monster of glory pretty easily. Consider just one arena where we see this monster rear its ugly head, the arena of sports. Right? I mean, if you think about uh, the way sports are in our culture, there was a campaign a while ago that Nike did, and it was, it, the, you'd see the big words that said, glory begins. And then if you read about it, it said this, 
This project begins with the simple idea that glory begins with you and Nike. That's a really bold statement, right? It's also a very clever marketing campaign, right? If you, if you want glory, it begins with you and Nike. You know you have it in you, but Nike can help you get there. I was on the Indiana University website a few weeks back on the athletic page. Any Indiana University graduates here? There's got to be a couple, right? <laughs> okay. So I'm on their webpage. I'm looking at the, the, the athletic page, and, uh, and I noticed it said this, and I'll read it to you, and uh, you'll see it up here. It says, fight for the glory of old IU. And it says, Assembly Hall, Memorial Stadium, the Fieldhouse, Bill Armstrong Stadium. I've never seen these places, but I'm sure they exist. Okay? No matter which of the 13 IU athletics facilities you find yourself at, you'll feel the same fierce pride and undeniable sense of belonging. As a Hoosier, you already know you're part of something bigger than yourself. But when you show up to cheer on your team, you feel it at a far more visceral level. That's the power of IU Athletics. Fight for the glory of old IU. Now, I'm new to all things Hoosier, but I believe that that's even in the fight song, if I'm not mistaken. You know, fight for the glory of old IU. And just off the screen, you can't see it here, but at the bottom of the webpage, there's this, uh, there's this statement, the promise of something bigger than yourself. I mean, isn't that really what we all just want? We, we deeply desire to believe that there's more to life. Like, we're created for more. We have a longing for glory. And this morning, we're going to see that the only person who fulfills this longing is God Almighty Himself. He is the only one worthy of glory. And when we move our eyes from off of ourselves, and, and we place our eyes on Him as they should be, we get to see what true glory looks like. So I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 4 in your Bibles. You'll find that in the Old Testament, pretty far through the Old Testament, okay? The book of Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to give you a chance to find that while you're flipping through the pages to find Daniel 4. I want to remind you and remind us that the people that lived during the time of the Reformation were just like us. They were no different. They, they longed for glory in fact, glory, the longing for glory, had crept into the church. And so you had these church leaders desiring to share in the glory that rightly belonged to God himself. And the reformers were pretty quick to call this out. Luther, Martin Luther, he preached against what he called the theology of glory. And what he meant by that was that the church was trying to steal glory. It was trying to get the glory that only God deserved. And here are some examples that Luther pointed out and that we could remember. The, the church establishing these mediators besides Jesus Christ, go-betweens who would dispense grace, you know, venerated saints who they established as grace dispensers. This steals the glory from Christ, the glory from God. Or the church exerting authority that belonged only to God and His Word, right? Sola Scriptura. The church has promised to unlock heaven with the sale of indulgences. See, that steals glory from God. And here's a big one that Luther was very passionate about, and that is the meriting of salvation through a combo of Christ's righteousness and our righteousness. You know, he starts it, we finish it, and it's some kind of synergistic work. And what that does is that steals the glory from God. So Luther kept emphasizing it's not about our abilities, it's not about our glory. 
We can't even take one step in keeping the law because we're dead in our sins. We have nothing in us that is worthy of glory apart from Jesus Christ. This is what Luther was saying. We're sinners separated from God. We can't even begin to keep the law. In fact, the gospel teaches a glory of the cross. And if there's any glory to be had, it comes through suffering. And it comes through Jesus Christ alone. Glory belongs to God. Which means, to put it bluntly, that we are glory thieves. Humanity strives for self-glorification. You know this to be true, right? I mean, whenever you see a picture and you're in the picture, you're seeing how good you look, right? Or bad you look. You're trying to, where am I in there? I mean, that's what we all do, right? Or am I just the only one? We all do that, right? We, we, We care about our own glory. And we strive for our own glory. And there are examples all around us. You know, a, not very long ago, Tom Petty passed away, I think a week and a half or so ago. And I was reading about his life. And did you know that he met Elvis at the age of 10? So 10 years old, Tom Petty meets Elvis. And he says that day, I want to be a rock star. He did it. He did it. But along the way, he created some carnage as well. And he had some difficulty in life. Peter Cetera did it all for the glory of love. Yet, both of his marriages went down in flames. And then there's Harvey Weinstein, right? Who, a man that's only concerned with glorifying and pleasing himself, and yet he has disgraced himself. And here's the irony of it all, right? As we strive for glory, as we try to set ourselves and exalt ourselves higher than we should be, we end up becoming not more than we were designed to be, but less than we were designed to be. In our quest to glorify ourselves, we end up degrading ourselves. I want to look at the story of an ancient glory thief in Daniel chapter 4. And here we see a man striving for glory who ends up being degraded. So Daniel 4, we're talking about a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He was a king from 605 to 562 BC. And he served as a general during his father's reign. He was known to be, by all accounts, a brilliant military strategist, and he expanded the empire. He, he fortified Babylon. He beautified it. And in fact, he built what was called the Hanging Gardens, which became known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So here's a powerful man, and as you can imagine, somebody who's in prime position for self-glorification. Look with me at Daniel chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 29 through 31. At the end of the 12 months, He, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And in my Bible in verse 30, I underlined I and the word my both times. Because Nebuchadnezzar's statements are quite narcissistic, aren't they? But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't wrong about the greatness of his kingdom. I mean, everything he says is accurate. He built the kingdom. He was powerful. And his words betray the idolatry of his heart when he says, I did it all for the glory of my own majesty. Nebuchadnezzar is just speaking out loud what a lot of people have in their hearts. At least he's being honest about it. He's telling us, this is why I did it. And herein lies the problem. You know, you and I, we crave glory. We love when people notice us. 
And if we ever do get any glory, we eat it up like Pac-Man. We love when people take notice. That's why we as pastors can even struggle with being up here and sharing a sermon and wondering, what do people think about me right now? Because something inside of us desires this, and somehow we forget, you know, that anything we ever have, any glory we ever get is only because of the gracious hand of God. It's only because He has gifted us, He has given us what He has given us. We deserve none of it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's uh, in for a rude awakening here, and some of you guys know the story, right? Maybe you don't, but look at verse 33 with me. Verse 33 of Daniel For immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. It's not just that he loses the throne. I mean, that's huge. But God brings upon Nebuchadnezzar one of the most peculiar judgments that we find in Scripture. He becomes like an animal. I mean... Can you imagine this? I remember as a kid, in my head, I had a, a, an image of this. I can't remember whether we had flannel graph pictures of this or not, you know, but um, like an animal, right? I mean, this is, a, this is crazy. This is the kind of stuff you see in the tabloids in the grocery store aisle, right? And if this happened today, you better believe there would be some meme which just over and over again had Nebuchadnezzar eating the grass, right? Looking like a fool. You know it would be posted all over social media because here we have this This majestic king now debased, degraded to the point of of animal status. I encourage you to read the rest of the story later today. It's fascinating and there's a really beautiful ending in Daniel 4. But the point is this, left to his own devices, man tries to rob the glory away from God and enjoy it for himself. Romans 1.23 says, mankind exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols and that we worship the creature instead of the creator. But here's where it starts to get good, and and here's hopefully where the sermon takes a little turn. Because, Because God knows this, because God knows that we are glory thieves, he has engineered salvation so that he gets all the glory and we get none. He knows the propensity of our hearts. He knows our proclivities. He knows that our hearts are idol factories, and he knows that we're glory thieves. And so God set it up. God engineered salvation in such a way that we can't take any credit. We can't glorify ourselves. He alone deserves the glory. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to stand in front of a great cathedral, maybe in Europe. I've seen some in Germany and other places around uh, Europe. I I snapped a picture of one in Prague, I believe it was, and you'll see it uh, up on the screen here. But whenever you stand in front of a a great cathedral and you, you look at it, what do your eyes do? Your eyes... You just kind of look up to the heavens. It's it's the very reason they designed them that way. And if you step into one of these cathedrals, it's the same thing. You're in there and you're reminded, I am smaller than I thought I was. The, The whole design there is so that we feel small and we're reminded that God is grand and God is glorious. And that's exactly what God did when he engineered salvation. When the the blueprints of salvation were drafted by God, he designed it in such a way that we would see how small we are and how grand and how glorious he is. I mean, just think about the things we've been studying in this series, the Sola series. You know, grace alone. Unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. And it's not that our cup of righteousness just isn't full enough. It's bone dry. 
we're dead, as Pastor Steve preached on several weeks ago. And once we realize we bring nothing to the table, we can't help but glorify God alone and look up and say, thank you, God. Or how about Christ alone? You know, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it is sufficient payment for our sins. We could never pay. We're bankrupt, spiritually speaking, but God, he's wealthy beyond imagination. And so his righteousness in our account, his wealth for our poverty, we sang about this. You know, he stood in our place. Surely God deserves the glory, not us, right? And so we look up and we glorify him. Or faith alone, you know, some will say, well, I believe, that was my part, I believed. Yes, you are right. But if we read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, as we did several weeks back, we see the text say, even our faith was not our own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. We can't boast. We cannot take any credit for it because we say, God, even my faith, even the decision for me when I was four years old to trust in Christ, even that came not because I was a particularly brilliant four-year-old, but because God, by his sovereign, merciful hand, reached into my heart and awakened it. And so we look up and we say, thank you, God. During the Reformation, here's something I want you to understand. There was an uncovering of the glory of God. As we talk about the glory of God and how these solas point to God's glory, it was as if in that time there were these clouds that covered the pure gospel of Christ. And so things, I mean, you can see from the illustration that I have here, I just sketched a few things down, I believe I have it, where it shows the, um, the various things that the church had set up, which, you know, kind of got in the way. You got church authority and pope and councils. You have theology about human goodness and infused righteousness, you know, a spark of divinity in, in the humankind. You have Christ's work plus our work. You know, you have the saints and you have Mariology and you have faith plus works, synergism. And see, all of this had clouded the gospel. All of this had brought a darkness upon the people. The religious trappings had veiled Christ. Uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a particularly overcast day. And I remember it because my kids said, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to school. And I'm driving them around to school. And I'm like, it is really kind of depressing looking outside, just so overcast. And I was like, God, I know the heavens declare your glory, but I'm having a tough time seeing it this morning. Right? And this is the situation in the Middle Ages. This is the, this is the situation of the church, an overcastness had fallen upon the people. And the glory of God was still there. God is no less glorious then than he is now, than he always will be. But people were struggling to see it. And so men like Huss and Wycliffe and Tyndale and Luther and Zwingli and so many others, their job became to whisk away all the other stuff, to get it out of the way so that it was grace alone, it was scripture alone, it was Christ alone, it was faith alone. And when that happened, the glory of God shone brightly. And it was for the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria became a theme in the hearts of many people. I want you to turn to one more passage, Isaiah chapter 6. So if you're in your scriptures, you can go previously in the Old Testament, about four books to the book of Isaiah. Go to the beginning of Isaiah to chapter 6. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. And what we see right out of the text is this. God's glory is the visible display of his invisible beauty. 
In this text, we're going to see the character of God, and where that is displayed is His glory. So look with me, Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 through 3. This is Isaiah writing. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God's nature here is holiness. That's who he is. And this word means set apart, different uncommon, or of a different kind. Every once in a while, there comes along the scene an athlete who is of a different kind, freakish. You know, you just, people say, I don't even know how he does what he does. Michael Jordan was that way, I remember, and Tiger Woods to golf, and Michael Phelps, and these people that you just go, they were built for that. Like, they're a freak. They're of a different kind altogether. And yet we don't have to look very hard at these men or any woman in this situation too until we see that they are sinful, that they are broken human beings just like the rest of us. But when we say that God is of a different kind, we're talking about a truly different kind. God is incomparable. That's what the word holy means. He is more rare than the rarest ruby. He is more precious than the most precious diamond. He's not just in a different category. He's in a different dimension. He sets the categories. And God is so uncommon that in this text, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Or in other words, they're saying, uncommon, uncommon, uncommon. God is of a different kind, of a different kind, of a different kind. That is who he is. That is his nature. Now, his nature is invisible. We cannot see him. But wherever his nature is Seen Wherever it's displayed, this is his glory. And Isaiah says the whole earth is full of his glory. And John Piper said it this way, the glory of God is the outward radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. It's a good definition. And I got a chance to study this word glory in the Old Testament here. The word glory is pretty neat. It, it carries the idea of weightiness. That with God, there is a weight, there is substance, there is a gravitas when we're talking about the nature of God. Here's another definition of glory. The weight of intrinsic goodness, the manifest gravity of dignity. Now, that's a definition by a guy named Matt Papa who wrote a book, which I highly recommend to you. It's called Look and Live. It's pretty easy to remember. Look and Live. The subtitle, Behold the Soul-Thrilling, Sin-Destroying Glory of of Christ, a book that really impacted me. I, I loved it. it. Came out a few years ago, but that is an awesome definition because it's taken right from Scripture. The weight of God. God carries a certain weight with His presence. He leaves an impression wherever He goes. As you read throughout Scripture, have you ever had the uh, opportunity to run into somebody famous accidentally? You know, not like you went to the sports outing and then you stalked an athlete. That's a little different. I'm talking about you're at the airport or something and all of a sudden you look over and you're like, wow, that's Manute Bowl or whatever. Um, And you just see somebody famous. I've heard a lot of cool stories. I don't have any. 
Uh, my, my one lame happenstance is when I ran into Larry the Cable Guy in Chicago, which I didn't even know who he was. I saw this dude, and, and I'm like, he looks kind of familiar. And somebody goes, that's Larry the Cable Guy. So I'm Googling that. Okay, he's a comedian. All right. That's it, you know. But, but something happens, doesn't it, when we accidentally run into somebody famous? We're like, oh, man, there they are. There's that person. We, we, we attach some glory, some weightiness to a superstar. Yeah, how many times are we nonchalant about the presence of God? We are in God's presence, reading his word, we're speaking to him, and we just don't even think much of it. Surely we underestimate the gravitas of God. But here's the remedy. Here's the remedy. The more we behold the glory of God, the more we see who he really is, we understand his character. And as we understand his character, we are changed, and we now see clearly. For many of us, we need a reformation. We need a personal reformation where we can behold the glory of God, where we whisk away all the other stuff in our life that is clouding his glory. And I wrote down some of the things that we might see instead of God's glory. You know, we're so consumed with good blogs and podcasts and good books and, you know, all of that, and that's great. And uh, or maybe we're just so consumed with working hard and trying to be that moral person that God wants us to be, that good dad or that good mom or whatever. Or image control. I mean, how, how worried are we about what people think of us? And so our life is filled with this stuff. And it's not that different than the time of the Reformation. We need to get rid of that stuff. We need to look at the glory of God, gaze upon his beauty, and then we see him for who he truly is. Remember, God's glory is the visible display of his invisible beauty. We need to spend less time thinking about ourselves and more time basking in the glory of Christ. Now, here's an unfortunate thing that I have to mention before um, we finish up this morning, and that is this, that not everyone who beholds the glory of God, likes it. In fact, in our natural man, the way we are apart from Christ, we actually recoil from the glory of God. When we see the beauty of God, when we see him in his glory, we don't want to see it anymore. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Here's what happens. As, as we are whisked away, as all the stuff about us is moved out of the way and we see God alone, it, it's actually kind of painful. Right, as, we, as we start to realize it's not about me, it's about God, it's about Jesus Christ alone, that hurts because we like ourselves and so it's something that we recoil from. I remember a student in my last youth group and I'll never forget this conversation that I had with him. We were driving in the car and we were talking about the gospel once again. Um, this was a young man who had grown up in the church who I thought was a believer until he became a teenager and started to struggle. And he said to me, he said, Pastor Mark, I, I just really don't like the idea of me being born broken, like fundamentally flawed as a sinner. I don't like that. I reject that. That is not what I, the way I want to think about myself. Well, we all feel that way. In fact, the student wasn't that different from Martin Luther, who before he became a believer said, I hated the righteousness of God. He said, when I saw that word, the righteousness of God, you can read about this, Martin Luther says, I hated it. Now, Luther didn't have a problem believing he was a sinner. In fact, he obsessed about being a sinner. But when he saw the righteousness of God or he read about the righteousness of God in the scriptures, he hated it because what happened was it highlighted the purity of God 
and it highlighted his sinfulness. And so the human kind recoils from this viewing the glory of God. The truth of the matter is that we are sinners unable to behold the glory of God. It's like when you were a kid, you know, and they told you, don't look at the sun. And so you were like, well, what's so awesome about the sun? I better look at the sun. And so you try to look at the sun, and all of a sudden your eyeballs are like melting, right? Solar eclipse or not, looking at the sun hurts because the sun is incredibly bright. It's so bright that our eyes cannot handle it. And And it's the same way with the glory of God. He is so beautiful and so pure and so glorious that if we are to look at the glory of God in ourselves, in our sin, it'll just disintegrate us. Back to Isaiah 6. Let's look at how Isaiah responds to the glory of God. How how does Isaiah respond? Well, look at verse 4 and 5 with me. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I don't think I have verse 6 on the screen, but I want to read that for you too, because here's what God did. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. When Isaiah sees the glory of God, he is undone. He realizes, I am a sinful individual. I can't even stand in your presence, God, unless you come and you minister to me and you forgive me. And if you were to do a study of the glory of God in the Old Testament, you're going to see the pillar of of fire and the cloud of smoke that accompanied the Israelites. You remember that? And it was called the glory of God, and it it would travel along with them, and at times it would encompass them and it would protect them. And it was the presence of God, the glory of God. But then there are other times in which it would box them out, and it would keep them from God's presence, and it would actually bring judgment on them. And the same thing happens with the tabernacle and the temple, right? The glory of God is there. But as we read in the Old Testament, there is a longing. There's something just, there must be more than this. Because there's always this barrier between man, between God's glory and humankind. And so we feel inside of ourselves as we read the Old Testament a longing for more, a disappointment. Like, yes, God is awe-inspiring and God is glorious, but something just isn't right. Enter Jesus Christ, right? The most beautiful display of glory that there ever has been. And you want to talk about famous? Jesus is the famous one. With the incarnation of Jesus, God's glory is revealed like never before. And there is an awesome passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 3, it says this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But he is the radiance of the glory of God. That's who Jesus is. He is the radiance, the the display of God's glory. Christ, he's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. He is the true temple, right? He is the tabernacling of God's glory with humankind. Majesty meets humility. 
Take note, though, of what Martin Luther said. He said this, It is not sufficient for anyone, and it does him no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty unless he recognizes him in the humiliation and the shame of the cross. Jesus revealed God's glory in a very peculiar way, right? I mean, he's born in a manger. He, he is a human being, which Scripture says he's in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, he had no sin in him. But he's born as a human, and he suffered on that cross. And so Jesus, he bridges that gap between the glory of God and humans. He made a way where there was no way so that mankind could behold the glory of God without being incinerated. And this, my friends, is good news for sinful people. This is really good news because you and I, we can't ascend to the glory of God. Every man falls short of the glory of God. So God knew that. Right? God descended to us and he made a way and he brought the glory of God to human beings. And so all we can do, literally all we can do is to look up and say thank you and turn our eyes up to God and give him full glory. We deserve none of it. Glory belongs to God. So how then shall we live if this is the case? If God deserves all the glory, if it's all about him, if salvation points to his glory, What do we do with that? Like, how do we go away from here and try to put this into practice? Well, the Westminster Catechism says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The the main reason we're here on earth is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, one of the things I love about that verse is how it, it busts apart the divide. It just, it just uh, explodes the divide between the sacred and the secular. Right? Everything you do, whether you're a pastor or a plumber, or whether you, whatever you're doing, if you're eating, you're drinking, even the most mundane things, you do them all for the glory of God. And you know, this is something that Martin Luther and John Calvin emphasized quite a bit. Because up to this point, there was a very huge divide between the, the, the priests and the laity, right? They're, they do sacred work. The average person, they do mundane, secular work. But Luther and Calvin started to blow that apart. They started to say, you know what? The priest and the plowboy are both doing sacred work if they're doing it with love in their hearts for others and love for God and glory to God. And these reformers, they influenced many people in their day, including a man named Johann Sebastian Bach. You've probably heard of, right? He's written a bunch of music, some that's used in the church and some that was just for secular concerts. And on every piece of music that you'll, you'll find of Johann Sebastian Bach, he's got three initials on one corner and three initials in another corner. In one corner, he has his initials, JSB. But in the other corner, he has SDG which stands for Soli Deo Gloria. Because he realized that art, even art, is designed to bring glory to God. Whatever we do, the the mundane things, everything is done for the glory of God. I remember getting this as a teenager. Like I was studying this verse, I was studying this concept. I remember how it was eye-opening. It was like my whole life had been turned upside down. I mean, you're telling me that I can drink this cup of coffee for the glory of God? Like... This is awesome. Okay, okay. so I can work at the supermarket and I can bring God glory. 
I can play soccer, and if I do it with thankfulness in my heart and joy to the Lord and passion and, and all that I have, I can bring God glory? It was like revolutionary for me. This is a very awesome concept. But as I was studying this, this text, as I was studying these passages for the sermon this morning, I was convicted of something as well. And I want to share that with you. I want to caution us a little bit from abusing 1 Corinthians 10.31. Here's what can happen. Sometimes we can do this. We can say, well, that means that I can do whatever I want in my life and kind of put a stamp of soli deo gloria on it and it's all worship, right? I just arrange my life how I want to and my whole life is worship to God, right? Easy, done. You know, sin is so insidious that even glorifying God can somehow be about us. It's not enough to just say my whole life is worship to God. God deserves our whole heart. He deserves our full gaze and he deserves all the glory. And in an attempt to make worship comprehensive, we could make it common. We could not be realizing how sacred God really is, how weighty he really is, how he deserves time from us that is uninterrupted, that is just focused on who he is. I mean, remember the way Isaiah responds here. He's undone. And do we ever have any time in which we're just undone before God? Where we gaze at the beauty of the Lord and we just, that's all we do. We do nothing else. We don't try to multitask. I mean, I love all the, the, the technology we have and all the ways I can listen to the Bible while I'm driving my car and all that stuff, and it's all good. But rather than multitasking, when do we just spend time pouring over this word and meditating on it or taking some time to just talk to God, to lift our request to him? Have we become so busy doing things for the glory of God that we've forgotten the God of glory, that we forget who he is, that we haven't been in his presence C.S. Lewis said this in The Great Divorce. He said, every poet and musician and artist, but for grace, is drawn away from the love of the thing he tells to the love of the telling. What he meant by that was you can become drawn away from the love of God, love for God, to just enjoying telling about him, talking about him. Ministry could do this. Like we could become so in love with ministry that we forget who it's about. We forget the God of that ministry. When you look at Isaiah and the way he is commissioned here in Isaiah 6, I mean, he is getting ready to go do ministry and hard ministry at that. God tells him, no one's going to listen. Everyone's going to reject you and reject me. But he's being commissioned, and what does God do in the very beginning of his commission? He shows him his glory. And he is able to bask in that glory. And I believe that this will happen for us. If we spend time in all of God, we will then go and we will do all things for God's glory. It won't just be a stamp on our lives. Yeah, I, everything I do is worship. I'm a worshiper. That's what I do. No, we'll actually be so in all of who God is that it will fuel what we do. That we will share Christ with our neighbor because Jesus is worth it. Not just because they're going to die and go to hell. Yes, that is very true if they do not accept Christ. But because Jesus is worth it. And we'll go to work and we'll do our work the best that we can. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. And it will transform our life. We will try to kill sin because we've seen how glorious God is. And we don't want that anymore. We recognize it as a glory thief. 
And we say, no, God, you are far more glorious. Jesus, you are far more beautiful than fill in the blank. See, we, we have to have this reformation happen. And in order for that to happen, we have to see God and we need to see him in his glory. That's going to take some effort on our part because we live in an age of distraction more than any other time that there ever has been. I mean, how many notifications have you probably gotten while you've been sitting in here? Don't look, okay? Do not do it. But you have emails that have come in and texts that have come in. Somebody probably mentioned you on some social network. I don't know. And so we have to really work hard at this. We have to, we're going to have to carve out time where we say, God, this is just for you. I'm just going to talk with you. I'm just going to read your word. I'm not going to do anything else. It's going to be a battle. But he's worth it. He's worth it. And what we find is that when we see him for who he is, now we can do the rest of our day the right way with proper motivations, not so that we are recognized, but so that he receives glory. Just think about this for a second. Uninterrupted time with God where it's just us and God, whether it's reading the word, whether it's praying. In the world's eyes, it's largely unproductive, right? Prayer, how unproductive is that when it comes to your job, to uh, whatever it is, at least in man's eyes? That should show us that soli deo gloria is not about us. It's about him. It's just about him, and that's it. Now, of course, we understand that it is highly profitable, because it revolutionizes the way we see things and it changes us. And spiritually, there could be very little more important than prayer, right? Than reading the word of God. It is the most important thing. But we struggle so much to do it because we're so consumed with everything else. So it is all for him. We exist for the glory of God. As amazing as family is, it exists for the glory of God. As amazing as marital intimacy is, it exists for the glory of God. As amazing as filet mignon and espresso are, they all exist for the glory of God. And there's, there's a real beauty, isn't there, in realizing that all of these things, all of these pleasures, all of these beauties were actually made as a means to an end. They're not an end of themselves. You know, you don't drink that cup of coffee or whatever it is. You don't do that just for the, the sake of experiencing it, the, the design of them is that when your taste buds are awakened, you say, God, you are amazing. You have created the human body in an amazing way. You have allowed farmers to plant this crop and shade-grown trees and all, whatever. I mean, you're able to really see God and all that he's doing. And I think of Psalm 115, I close with this verse. It says this in Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This must be true and this must be a mantra for our own personal lives and it has to be true for Bethel Church. It's not about us. It's not about the pastors. It's not about the leaders here. It's not about our fame or renown in Northwest Indiana. It's about Christ's fame and renown in Northwest Indiana. A couple weeks ago, uh, Abraham was here. He's a missionary to India and if you were here and you heard him, the best part about his presentation, I think, is when he just got really loud. He was like, for the glory of God, right? Not for us. For the... And he just kept doing that. And I was in the commons of Cedar Lake, and I was hearing him, and I was like, yeah, that's right, Abraham. That's the truth of the matter. For the glory of God, not for us. Pray with me. Oh, Father God, may we tremble in your presence May we recognize the 
weight and the gravity of your glory. God, we are far too flippant in your presence. And Lord, I just pray that you would convict each of us, myself included, to stop and to be present with you and to bask in your glory. Lord, it doesn't seem that productive for what we need to accomplish on our task list. And yet, God, it is the most productive thing we could ever be engaged in, worship of you, uninterrupted worship. And Lord, we live in a culture that really goes against the grain here, so we're asking you to show us how to do this. Remind us as we go throughout our day today that we're going to need to set apart times, Lord. Please, we want to see you. We want to see Christ lifted up. Lord, I want to take a moment to pray for anyone that might be in here who is hearing this sermon, and to them, the glory of God so far has seemed oppressive. It is something that they don't like, and if they're honest, it just makes them feel worse about themselves. But God, I pray that today you would do some mighty work in their heart, that you would awaken them. Let them see that while they've been striving for their own glory this whole time, you are far more glorious. And living for you brings real meaning to life because God, you designed us that way. And I just pray for a soul in here that may need to trust in Christ as their savior, in Christ alone. And that they would recognize that though they bring nothing to the table, that's okay because you have done it all. Jesus paid it all. And I just pray, Lord, for that individual maybe who needs Christ. And God, for those believers here, I just am asking that you would do a, a work in our hearts. Lord, do a surgical work where you show us how we're glory thieves. Show us the things that we have filled our life with that have obscured you. Lord, may we whisk those away. May we just come back to a, a pure center where we love you and love you alone. And God, I just pray that that would change us as a church, that would change us as people, that we would go out from this place having seen the glory of God and now taking it to a people who desperately need to see something more beautiful than their life. And Lord, would you use that? Would you change our area through that. And we'll give, we will give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.